this afternoon now. It starts our new series entitled Building Culture, which I'll introduce a bit more. But just to explain that the kind of intro video that we'd normally do is going to look different over this series where we're going to be seeking to show a couple of people who are part of Oasis as Oasis isn't a name or a building, it's people. And just reveal something about who they are, where they're uniquely placed, and how they reveal Jesus through it. And what I'm hoping it will do as we get to see that, and I hope that many of you in the room will get to be part of this as well, is it allow us an opportunity to get to know one another and also get to celebrate in where each of us is placed. And so that's going to be happening uh, kind of week on, week out throughout this series. But before we kind of get into this series we've entitled Building Culture, which even that can feel a little bit like, what on earth is that about? Um, I just want to kind of set it in context. It's important that we join the dots. As What we believe as a church is we're on a journey. We're on a journey where we believe God's called us here in Birmingham to reveal what he's about, which is we want to be those who are seeking to love God and to love people. That's how we've put it very simply. But in it, as we open God's word, we're believing that God wants to say things to us to encourage us in our journey of loving God and loving people. And this year, we started off the year with this encouragement to live with a theme, a theme that we entitled Building. And it was from a passage in Isaiah in Isaiah 54, uh, verse 2, where the prophet, uh, or God via the prophet Isaiah, is encouraging the people to not do something new, but rather that God's going to extend and expand and grow what they're already doing. And we felt that God wanted to say that to us as well as a church. It wasn't that we necessarily needed to do something new. It's rather that God wanted to build in what we're already doing, both in who we are as a community, but what it means for us as a community uh, to be extending out within the world and to be scattered through in the world. And what we said is we're therefore going to go this year for four different ways in which we're building, which is a building of depth, a building of breadth, a building of God's kingdom, which is rule and reign in and through everything, and then a building, building. And that building, building one is a bit of a funny one, but it's because we believe ultimately we want to have a home that's our own. We love being at the cricket ground. We have a massive partnership with the cricket ground here, unique privileges of getting involved in test matches and being able to influence the culture of the cricket ground. However, there's limitations when you're in someone else's building. There's things that you can and can't do. And so therefore, at some point, we want to have our own building that enables us to do everything we want to. Not that it defines us, rather we define it, and it can be a base from which we can kind of continue to reveal the wonder of who God is. So that's why we've got the building, building bit. And so there's kind of this theme of building that we're living with this year. We've also just finished a mammoth tour of the book of Ephesians, which we started this time last year and finished three weeks ago. And so those of you who may be new here are thinking, what? That is a mammoth tour. It was a mammoth tour, but it did us good. We entitled the whole series Crafted as what we discovered week in, week out through that series is God has lovingly made us for purpose. Every single one of us. And his love defines us. His love then shapes us and allows us to understand where we are and what we're doing at this point in time. Not what we could be doing, but rather in this moment, God's wanting to use us to reveal what it looks like to be loved by him. And we found it such a privilege. Now, if you were unable to be through that, rather than listening to a year's worth of talks, and what I'd encourage you to do is just listen to one. In actual fact, it's actually a short video. And in six minutes, 40 seconds, you'll get the wonder of the whole of the book of Ephesians. And so in the summer, I ended the series by 
pushing myself to do a communication uh, method that's called Pecha Kucha. It uh, was created in Japan by some architects to stop them waffling. In essence, what happens is you have 20 slides, you have 20 images, and you can talk for 20 seconds for each image, and the, then the slide automatically moves forward. So you can't fudge it. It is 20 seconds. And so I thought, man, let's give that a go. That'd be quite fun. And so in six minutes, 40 seconds, summarized the whole of Ephesians and left us hopefully with a bit of a challenge. So there you go. Everyone's got six minutes, 40 seconds, haven't they? And so there, I leave that with you, as I think it will do you good. So we've given, come from this place of the call to be building, an understanding that we're crafted, lovingly made for purpose. And where we're ending off, off with is kind of an application then of how do we then craft the environments that we're in. And we're living then with this title of we want to be those that are involved in building culture. Now, when I say building culture, immediately that can feel a bit of a weird title because culture can feel a little bit grandiose. It could be feeling a bit up there. Or maybe it feels a bit out there. If it was a bit nothing in me, if it was lacking substance, it's kind of, well, you know, culture. And different ones of us, different things. See, I can talk about the culture of my family. I could talk about high intellectual culture. I could talk about the arts as culture. I could talk about governmental systems as culture. And so I could feel a little bit out there. Now, what I want them to see, what I want us to see is actually there is an understanding of culture that is quite concrete that every single one of us is involved in. And what we want to do is see how do we then make and shape this as defined by God. But to help us understand with a kind of working definition of culture, I want to use a quote by a guy called Andy Crouch. One is because he's way cleverer than me. Two is he wrote a book called uh, Culture Changes, uh, which next week I will give away because usually if we recommend a book, we will say it should be given away. Uh, because if you think it's that good, then you should give it away. And so next week, we will give some copies away. This week, I failed, forgot to log on to Amazon, forgot to order them. So next week, you get a free book. So there's no other reason, is there? Come next week, you could get a free book. Wow. Um, maybe some of you think, I don't want the book. Still come. It'll be good. But anyway, Andy Crouch says this about culture. He says, the best definition of culture I've come across is from Ken Mayer, a fellow journalist. It's simply this, culture is what human beings make of the world. Culture is what human beings make of the world in both senses, both tangible and intangible. Culture includes the physical product of human activity in the world. Clothes, chairs, buildings, all of these things are material acts of humans engaging and reshaping the world that they're in. Culture also includes the intangible. It's not just material, it's also meaning. It's not just stuff, it's also sense. The things that we make actually shape the way we engage with and present meaning to each other. It shows us that the human drive to make something in the world is driven by the instinct that the world must have some ultimate meaning. That there is some order, some rationality, and some personality behind the world. As I said, he's a bit cleverer than me, and I thought that was quite a good definition of culture. And in it, what he's basically saying, as I said, is culture is what we make of the world, both in what we do, but also the motivation behind what we do. And of those of us who've put our trust and faith and centered our whole life around God, who's Father, Son, and Spirit, around his love, what happens is that he then is defining 
the culture we then get to build. And we're going to examine that a little bit more through this morning, or this afternoon, and we'll be examining it over the coming weeks of what does that culture look like that God wants to define in and through us that he's all about. Now in it, as we see that culture and we get to explore it, I want us to understand the culture that we're building is twofold. It's in two different places. And to illustrate this, I want to talk about the bus. See, a bus in itself always has a culture. If you ever travel on public transport, particularly on West Midlands travel, you know, if you pay your however much it is now, it seems to go up extortionate amounts every time I get on. Uh, you get in, is the ideal culture of the bus is this. You do not look at anyone. You definitely don't speak to anyone. And either you play music so you can't speak to anyone and they won't speak to you, or you read something. You either come with preparation books with you, or you grab a copy of the Metro at the front of the bus to ensure that you can prop it up so no one else can see you. The culture of the bus, in terms of getting to somewhere, to work, to shop, is that it's me and me alone. But there's this other culture that you can find on a bus. If you get on a bus where everyone's about to go on a trip, maybe they're all going to the same destination, and there's a sense of excitement and anticipation about what's going to happen, suddenly everyone on the bus feels a bit more connected. Someone starts a song and everyone joins in. Someone starts to talk. Someone turns around and starts to talk to you. At that point, you don't say, sorry, I'm going to grab the metro. You actually, actually, yeah, we're all on this. And what I want us to understand is Oasis is like that sort of bus. And we're called to build a culture in who we are, a culture that is defined by God. But the deal is that it isn't just a culture that we build on the bus. It's also a culture that we take with us when we get off at different stops. You see, the bus that we're on as Oasis, as with every other local church, has got a very fixed destination, which we're going to look at in a moment. But along the way to the destination, the call isn't that we all hang, up, hang on in, in the bus. It isn't that we just say, I know, let's just camp out of the cricket ground 24-7. This is where we're going to live, eat, everything, be together. It'd be an amazing culture we can create together probably smell to be honest but there's that it's actually that within the bus that we're part of oasis that at different points we get off at different stops where we're uniquely placed the homes we live in the communities we live in the jobs we do the education structures we're part of the recovery that we're involved in and it's in that moment it isn't that we then become separate to the culture we enjoyed on the bus it's rather that we get to take that culture wherever we go and use that to shape that environment that we're in. So with it then, it then means then, what does that kind of culture look like? What kind of culture is it? Now, at this point, I'm not asking everyone to say, okay, I think it might be this, it might be this, and maybe we could think of like lots of nice things that could make up the culture. Rather, as I said, this is a culture that's actually defined by God. And therefore, though the bus is one where everyone's welcome, like everyone is always welcome at Oasis, anyone at any point in their journey towards understanding who God is, it's always welcome. However, to get a seat on the bus, actually we need to understand there's, there's, there's a defining moment that goes on at that point, a defining moment that then changes how you then create culture. See, to get a seat on the bus 
means there's come a moment, if we flip to the next slide, that in Colossians 1.13, Paul writes this, he says, For he has rescued us, that's God, has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves. So you need to understand that the only reason we get to sit there is because we've come into this reality, this understanding of who Jesus is. That through his life, death, and resurrection, he's able to offer a way for us to know total peace and love. And Paul writes it here and saying, well, it's actually that he's rescued you. He's rescued you from darkness into his kingdom, which is a way of saying his rule and reign. Now in that, it can be weird, and we haven't got enough time to expand on all of this, but in terms of darkness, what Paul is pointing to there is saying, actually, just think for a moment what darkness looked like. It's not like darkness in the city, I mean pitch black. And in a moment of pitch black, where, where you find yourself in that sort of environment, suddenly all your senses go on overload, and you feel disorientated. And ultimately, the, own, the overpowering sense you often have when you find yourself in pitch darkness, in pitch black, is fear. Fear of the unknown. Fear of what could happen. And if you like, Paul says, well, that's what it was like. You were in a dominion of fear. Fear of, are you good enough? Fear of what will happen to you when you die. Paul says, oh, oh Jesus can rescue you from that. Jesus has rescued from that. In order that you go and be under his rule and reign, there isn't fear, but it's rather love. He so says, you're now under the, the son's kingdom. You're under the son's rule and reign. And that means that you're under his love. That you get to be defined by his love. That everything we're going to look at in terms of culture is under the, the, the boundaries of who Jesus is and who he is, is love. And wants you to live in the wonder of his love. With that, you can then say, well, okay, so I've got this amazing kingdom I'm part of. We'll look in a bit more detail what that looks like. But actually, it's a bit more to it than that. So you see, Philippians 3.20 says this. But our citizenship is in heaven and we eagerly await a saviour from there, the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, it isn't just simply that we've been rescued from something into something. It's also that we're now to live as citizens in this kingdom, this heaven that is to come, this rule and reign that is, that is coming and is to come. And that as we live as citizens there, it then means that we live differently. See, in our culture, we tend to not talk a lot about citizenship, apart from if you're from another nation and trying to get citizenship here. And then if you speak to someone who's trying to get citizenship as a British citizen, it means a great deal to them. For people like me who were born here, it doesn't mean anything really, but it should. Not because I'm an imperialist or think something brilliant about Britain, but because it caused me to understand more about what Paul's writing here, about what it truly means to be a citizen of God's kingdom. See, citizenship is all about a sense of belonging, of understanding that we belong to something. And Paul says, oh, oh, what you belong to isn't, isn't Great Britain. You belong to Jesus' kingdom. You belong under his rule and reign. It's also about privilege. It means that you get to live understanding you live in all of the wonder of his rule and reign and the privilege that it affords you. It also means that thirdly, you get to be a representative of that kingdom. It means that you get to define a culture that reveals what he's all about to anyone else who comes to look in. Paul says you, you're to live knowing you're a citizen of it. Now in it, 
what's really key then is for us to understand that there is a destination of the bus. Because in understanding that this bus has a destination, it then defines the culture that we live with. It defines kind of how we then reveal that to other people. And I love this passage in Colossians 1.5, and this is um, through the kind of amplification of the Greek in the version called the message. And I know different people have different views about the message. I find the message really helpful. And where you've got Peterson, he's basically done two things. He's kind of taking the original Greek of the words and then expanded it to use language to allow us to understand something. I don't use it all the time. I use it with other kind of versions of the Bible as well that are more literal. But this one just can be helpful. And what Peterson does here is he reveals something of the wonder that we're to live with in light of what is to come. And so he says, Colossians 1.5, this is what Paul writes, how Peter, Peterson interprets it. The lines, of purpose in your, the, the lines of purpose in your lives never grow slack, tightly tied as they are to your future in heaven, kept taut by hope. I think this is beautiful. They're basically saying, how we live now is defined by our final destination with God. That heaven is the realm where God is. So heaven is the realm where God is, where God's rule and reign is fully expressed. And how we live now is in light of where we're going to be. And we allow then the hope of where we're going and the vision that we have of it to cause us to stay in line with how we live in light with it. So, use that, so Peterson used that phrase, keep taught by hope. I think it's just a beautiful phrase. So it's like, if I say, come on, everyone, I've kind of tied a piece of rope to the top of this building. Let's all give it a go and climb up. At that point, two things are going to happen. Those of you who really know me are going to think, Adrian is very not practical. Therefore, let's give this a big tug several times and get the heaviest people here to do it first because there's a big chance that he hasn't tied it on tight enough or at all. The other is that Adrian tends to have massive accidents at heights Therefore, do we really want to do that? But let's say you still went there and then you gave it a tug and it just didn't even give. At that point, you think this rope is firmly anchored to the top. It's not going anywhere. The only way I'm going to go is up. And in the same way, what's happening here is this sense of as we get our vision filled more and more with the destination that we're, to, we're going to, and as we allow that to become more and more of a fixed position, it causes us to never get distracted by other things. We think, oh no, this is it. I'm not going to pursue anything else. It's that. And that that then determines everything about how I live now. See, we have a destination that is amazing. And it's important that we spend time looking at it. Because what we see is something of real substance. Over the past kind of three months, my son Sam and I have been reading through the Chronicles of Narnia, seven books that are exceptional. If you've never read them, can I strongly encourage you to read them? They're not children's books. They're books that people say are for children because adults find them too challenging. They are phenomenal. Because what C.S. Lewis did with his ability and creativity and his intellect of his mind was to take hold of the deep truths of what it means to know Jesus and follow him, of who God is as Father, Son, and Spirit, and reveal it through this creative story told through seven books of this other realm called Narnia combined with the world that we live in. 
And when you read through the seven books, you get to the last one. And if you've read through them, I'd encourage you to read through them again. And particularly the last one, which is The Last Battle, which is the, my favorite book of the whole series. And I want to just read an extract of the end of that book. Because what C.S. Lewis does is he gets this point and he allows the richness of the destiny that he has focused on in the reality of his faith in Jesus to permeate this story about a fictional place called Narnia. And you can't help, and so when Sam and I read it, we couldn't help but be quickening in pace as we read it, turning the pages because you got more and more excited as this fictional pace that pictures a real place in our faith became more and more real to us. So I'm just going to read a little extract from here, and then we're going to pick up then on the blueprint of everything C.S. Lewis wrote that's found in Revelation 21 22. This is all of the people who found themselves, the key guys in the stories, have found themselves together in this new creation. Old Narnia gone, new Narnia come, combined with our world here. So in New England, not in America, just literally a new restored England. And in it, this is them coming to terms with their surroundings. It says, they stood on grass, the deep blue sky was overhead, and the air which blew gently on their faces was that of a day in early summer. Not far away from them rose a grove of trees, thickly leaved, but under every leaf there peeped out the gold or faint yellow or purple or glowing red of fruits, fruits such as no one has seen in our world. The fruit made Tyrion feel that it must be autumn. But there was something in the feel of the air that told him it could not be later than June. They all moved towards the trees. Everyone raised his hand to pick the fruit his, he best liked the look of. And then everyone paused for a second. This fruit was so beautiful that each felt, it can't be meant for me. Surely we're not allowed to pluck it. It's all right, said Peter. I know what we're all thinking. But I'm sure, quite sure, we needn't. I have a feeling we've got to the country where everything is allowed. Here goes then, said Eustace, and they all began to eat. What was the fruit like? Unfortunately, no one can describe taste. All I can say is that compared with those fruits, the freshest grapefruit you've ever eaten was dull, and the juiciest orange was dry, and the most melting pear was hard and woody, and the sweetest wild strawberry was sour. And there were no seeds or stones and no wasps. If you'd once eaten that fruit, all the nicest things in this world would taste like medicine after it. It was the unicorn. Remember, this is obviously a fictional book. Um, <laughs> it was the unicorn who summed up what everyone was feeling. He stamped his right forehoof on the ground and neighed and then cried, I have come home at last. This is my real country. I belong here. This is the land I've been looking for all my life. Though I never knew it till now, the reason why we love the old Narnia is that it sometimes looked like a little like this. Oh, I don't know about you. You, know, you read that and you just think, yes. Sometimes I look at this world and think, that's amazing. But one day, when it's all new, as we're going to go and see, we'll look back and we think, oh, it's because it pointed. It pointed to what's going to be. So I get excited. Please bear with me. Um, I used my, I've lost my place as well. Then he said, because he's a unicorn. 
He's a very British unicorn. Um, Come further up, come further in. He shook his mane and sprang forward into a great gallop. A unicorn's gallop, which in our world would have carried him out of sight in a few moments. But now a most strange thing happened. Everyone else began to run, and they found to their astonishment that they could keep up with him. Not only the dogs and the humans, but even the fat little puzzle, that's the donkey, and short-legged Poggin the dwarf. The air flew in their faces as if they were driving fast in a car, without a windscreen. The country flew past as if they were seeing it from the window of an express train. Faster and faster they raced, but no one got hot or tired or out of breath. See, C.S. Lewis pens this in order that people would get hold of it and say, man, that's amazing. And then realize that he was only pointing to something that is far greater, far more beautiful, a destination that anyone who puts their faith and trust in Jesus is going towards. That we as a church are on a bus that's in one direction only. And that is to this destination, so that when John pens it to bring hope to people, it wasn't some make-believe story of saying, oh, I wonder what it could be like. It was a vision that he had of what is to be that would cause every believer from that point on to say, wow, that's to fill my vision. In order I know that's where I'm going because it will then define who I am now and how I live. So Revelation 21 starts off like this. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. Remember C.S. When you read this, you look at C.S. and you think, man, it's amazing. Um, For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the, sorry, I haven't got time today to explain every bit of this. If you've got questions about some of this stuff, please come and ask. If I don't know, I'll just go, I haven't got a clue. But some of it I have thought about. Um, I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. I want to pause there for a moment. There's a danger when we think that the destination is when God gets everything as it's meant to be. His, the whole new earth, new heaven, that's where God's realm is, comes together. But what it means is we're going to regress, we're going to return to the very beginning of the book, the very beginning of the Bible, where it all started with the garden. So that's the point. We'll go back to there, fig leaves, everything. And Paul says, or John says, sorry, no, no, what I see is a city. Why? Because God's design of this earth was always that it'd be filled with people. People point to a city. In actual fact, the whole of the Bible is a story of a garden to a city. The making of culture. This is what Andy Crouch says, which I I just thought was, again, very, very good. Credit to him. I'll take the glory. Um, Culture is God's original plan for humanity. What he's about to do is tell the whole of the Bible story from garden to city at the end in two paragraphs. And it is God's original gift to humanity, both duty and grace. Culture is the scene of humanity's rebellion against their creator, the scene of judgment, and it's also the setting of God's mercy. At Babel, the nations try to insulate and isolate themselves from God through a city where culture reaches critical mass. But beginning with Abraham, God forms a nation that will demonstrate the goodness and faithfulness of dependence on God. Jesus himself, a descendant of Abraham, is both a cultivator of culture, dwelling in and affirming much that is good in it, and a creator of culture, offering dramatically new cultural goods that reshape the horizons of the 
possible and impossible for Jews and Gentiles alike. He is crushed by culture, experiencing the full weight of its brokenness on the cross. Yet his resurrection begins a slow but inexorable redemption of culture, offering a down payment on the hope that culture's story will not have a dead end, but rather a new beginning. In the ultimate vision of that new beginning, the city is central, ushering in all the best fruits of human love and labour into eternal, consecrated praise. I thought that's phenomenal, isn't it? There's some people who just think, man, I just love their brain for a day. <laughs> He's one of them. C.S. Lewis is probably, I'd like it for a couple of days. It would have helped. But that, that pan, the destination we have is one that isn't a surprise to God. It's phenomenal. We continue, though. Next part, and I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people and he will dwell with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There'll be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. I did not see a temple in the city because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its, uh, are its temple. The city does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it, shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and the Lamb is its lamp. The nations will walk by its light, and the kings of the earth will bring their splendor into it. On no day will its gates ever be shut, for there will be no night there. The glory and honor of the nations will be brought into it. This is a phenomenal bit. There's so much in here we could talk about. I haven't got time. We're going to be expanding it over the coming weeks. But this part of the end is something we need to get hold of. The glory of the nations coming into it. What you and I do now gets added into eternity. This is what N.T. Wright says about this. What you do in the present by painting, preaching, singing, sewing, praying, teaching, building hospitals, digging wells, campaigning for justice, writing poems, caring for the needy, loving your neighbour as yourself, will last into God's future, our future. These activities are not simply ways of making this present life a little less beastly, a little more bearable, and to the day when we leave it behind altogether. No, they are part of what we may call building for God's kingdom. Man, doesn't that revolutionise what you do day to day? I say, man, I get to be involved in investing, building a culture in wherever I'm uniquely placed, as well as on the bus together at Oasis, that's going to last for eternity. That one day we'll meet Jesus face to face and he'll gather in his glory and praise to him. Things that we'll physically be able to see, buildings, paintings, writings, that are there, that we're always about in honour of him. Stuff that you've written, stuff that you've done, and God, it's going to be there. I don't know, I don't know how it's going to look. Sometimes I try and figure it out and think, is it going to be like a massive art gallery? Because remember, we've got eternity. That's a long time. <laughs> that you just get to wander around and just gaze at what people have created. It isn't suddenly we all go back to fig leaves and God. There's going to be computers, everything there. Because why? Whatever's good, God's going to take and bring honor to himself. But it'd be even better. Come on, Asian, stay in class. Next bit, because we haven't even finished Revelation 22. So then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, as clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb, down the middle of the great street of the city. On each side of the river stood the tree of life, bearing 12 crops of fruit, yielding its fruit even every month. 
And the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. And there's loads in there in terms of forgiveness, restoration of the curse of Babel. But for those of you who were put off by the city because you love the country, don't worry, it is a garden city. There's a garden at the heart of it. There is beauty there. And I had to skip out the bit about how amazing the city. Can I please ask you, please read Revelation 21, 22 every day this week because it will just do your heart good. The whole bit about the beauty of the city where it just describes all these wonderful stones and you think, what on earth? It's just showing that this is beyond our comprehension of the beauty of it. Like, I love cities. I love going around London. I love People keep telling me, I get texts saying, you must go to New York. You must go to Tokyo, Adrian. You're going to love it. Anyone want to sponsor that? Really happy to. Um, but... In it, why? Because I go in there and think, this is beautiful what people have created. Buildings, architecture, lighting. And then you look at Revelation 21, you think, I have nothing. City to come that is just going to bowl you over, eh, Hurst? I often speak third person to myself, you've not made me fool. Um, going back, sorry, Emily, my daughter's doing this. I've not finished, have I? Uh, where we got to? No longer will there be any curse. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city and his servants will serve him. They will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads. Come on to that in a moment. There will be no more night. They will not need the light of a lamp and light of the sun for the Lord God will give them light and they will reign forever and ever and ever and ever. Forever. Man, that's a good destiny, isn't it? I don't know. I think it personally is a pretty good destiny. And that destiny then affects the culture we build now. So if we do flip to the next slide, see, we're going to examine over the coming weeks the culture we get to build that's revealed through this passage of love, of hope, of honouring, of generosity, of creativity, justice, comfort, power, rest, humility, forgiveness, which is all anchored in our destiny that we get to live in the beauty of now. I don't know about you, but I look at that and think, I want to be part of that. That's a pretty cool culture. I want to be part of building that. I want to be part of building that wherever I go. But the thing is... That's not the good stuff. The good stuff of our destiny is the one who is the source and the center of everything. See, it just permeates the whole of John's vision. This God at the very center. So my favorite bit of um, the last battle is this bit. Where they've been in this new creation and it's just overwhelmed them. And there's a moment within all the beauty they come across something even more wonderful. And it says this, soon they found themselves all walking together and a great bright procession it was up towards mountain heights then higher than you can see in this world, even if they were to be seen. But there was no snow on those mountains. There were forests and green slopes and sweet orchards and flashing waterfalls, one above the other going up forever. And the land they were walking on grew narrower all the time with a deep valley on each side. And across the valley, the land, which was the real Ingram, grew nearer and nearer. The light ahead was growing stronger. Lucy saw that, saw a great series of many-colored cliffs led up in front of them like a giant staircase. And then she forgot everything else. Can you imagine that? All of that beauty, and something happens that causes us to forget everything. Because Aslan, C.S. Lewis's revelation of who God is, Aslan himself was coming, leaping down from cliff to cliff like a living cataract of power and beauty. When I read that, I'm I'm going to talk for a moment because otherwise I'll get emotional. That in it, that when you read Revelation 21, 22, and it blows my mind that friends who are suffering with cancer at the moment, 
The cancer never has the last word. There will be no more cancer. No more suffering, no more pain. No more death. I know that's my destiny. I know that's our destiny. I know that there's going to be a place of such intricate beauty that brings the best out of what we've known and makes it even better. But I also know that the very centre and source of it all is one who actually causes everything else to be forgotten. That when we finally do see God, who is Father, Son and Spirit, fully face to face, not kind of theoretically thinking what it is, not just knowing the Spirit alive within us, but actually physically seeing him, it will cause everything else to pale into insignificance. As we get to understand as seen in Revelation 21-2, that God, Father, Son and Spirit is revealed as the source of all. That he's the source of all of the new beginning. He's the source of light that brings safety and protection. He's the source of life that is eternal. He's the source of love and peace. He's the sustainer of it all. He's the one who sits on the throne and whose river flows out, the spirit floods out and sustains everything that we see in our destiny that's to come. He's the one that provides the trees that bring fruit and life. He's one that's at the centre of it all, not in some building or temple, but literally has just covered the whole of the planet or whatever it is, because it seems to be multidimensional. The universe is filled with God. I can't get my head around that. I said that God isn't contained. God is just seen everywhere. And yet there's these perplexing images that say he's seen everywhere, known everywhere. His glory is so glorious that it lights up everything. And yet he's on a throne. And you can see him on the throne. And everyone gathers around him on the throne. Yet he's everywhere. Because he's at the centre of everything. Why? Because it was always the promise. He's in everything and will be at the centre of everything. And everything will come around him. And most phenomenally, he's the one that we belong to. And you get these ways. So you get an image of a bride. That we're it. We're the bride. That we finally get to meet him. And that bride commitment... The commitment of love that says it's now forever. Everything you saw. I was at a wedding yesterday. It's amazing. The bride comes in, everyone goes, oh, look at her, amazing. And then goes to the front and you see these vows being taken. That's just the, it's just the shadow. A shadow of the greatest wedding that's ever going to happen, of us with God. There's a promise that will be forever. It says, I'm never going never to leave you. I'm besotted. I'm in love with you. That's it. We belong to him. So much so that he says, oh, you're going to have my name. But you know you've got my name because it's going to be on your forehead. <laughs> like, that's like nuts, isn't it? Are you God? Are you God? I'm God too. <laughs> it's like, there's no, you know, fortunately we don't, don't do branding in this country. You know, my kids, you know, right, you're a Hearst. <laughs> We're Hearst. <laughs> Register. This, and I think amazing that forever there will be no question as to whose we are. We're God's. And the thing is, we get to live now with that source and centre of God in us. It isn't that we just say, oh, that's the destiny. It's then we get to pull it in. Remember that cord getting tighter and saying, no, this is where I'm heading. So I'm just watching time. I can get too carried away. That it means that there's an invitation to see and taste some of us say, no, no, isn't it taste and see? I don't know, in this instance, we have to see first before we can taste. We have to keep allowing the vision of what is to be to cause us to say, man, I need to taste that. 
That, to be honest, I always find taste and see it, just a quick side, I find taste and see a bit funny, because to be honest, I generally want to see what I'm tasting. I'd, I'd, I'd like it, but I, again, if someone said, close your eyes, taste this, I'm always a bit wary. <laughs> I want to see it. And I think in this, God wants us to do that. He wants to say, see clearly what is to be, and then taste deeply of it. So how do we do that? Well, it means, I think it's a pattern that we daily have to live with. Because if I don't, what I've realized happens is two things. One is that I start to think more about the culture that I get to build than, one, than the one who's at the center of it all. And in the end, what that leads me to doing is just working really hard. And as I've said before, if you work hard, you sweat, and sweat smells. And I just start to smell bad. I speak to anyone in my family and they'll tell you that. Not just in the natural, but also in my spiritual life. They can tell when I'm, I'm smelling bad spiritually, when I'm a bit groggy. It's because I've lost sight of the source and the center. But it's also that I can find myself getting distracted. Distracted by other things that can feel important. But actually they can steal my gaze. And so those points I have to just keep coming back. And so for me it's a daily rhythm of coming and daily rhythm of continuously contemplating. Now, I'm not saying that we can't get on with our work, but I'm saying have pause moments. We've talked about this in our history. We have moments within our, our days where we're pausing. And we're making a fact of it. You know, I used to love working in the civil service. Now, in the days I worked in the civil service, everyone had cigarette breaks. Um, it's, no one really does that now. Or people do, but everyone frowns on it. Uh, at that point, like, there was a smoking room in the office. That's where we were at that point. And um, so everyone smoked. Um, but in it, what I realized is other people had smoke breaks. I thought, well, I'm going to have pause moments as well. And so I used to create my own pause moment. My boss was totally fine with it. So we'd pause moments throughout my day. It might be as you go and make a coffee. It might be you go to the loo. And you just pause. And in that pause, what you do is you contemplate. You bring to mind the wonder of the destiny that we share, something of what we've looked at today. And then you ask and you say, God... Would you make this real for me? I often come and say, God, one day you're going to wipe away every tear. I want it now. I need your comfort. Come and comfort me. And then what happens is having asked, we then receive. And say, God, I receive what you've got for me. By faith, through your spirit. And then having received, I then celebrate. I get to live this life of just celebration of the destiny I've got, that I get to live in the good of it now, that I belong to God. I might not have it branded on my forehead, but I know it in my heart. So in worship, I can stand there and say, yeah, I am a child of God. This is pretty amazing. It's good to remember together because sometimes I lose sight of it. I have to keep coming back. Yes, I'm a child of God. Therefore, God is my father. What a father. And then before I know it, I'm asking again from that father in order that I'd receive, in order that I can then celebrate. And we find that there's this cycle that then goes on of contemplation, asking, receiving, celebrating, contemplating, asking, receiving, celebrating, contemplating, asking, receiving, celebrating. Do you get it? And I encourage us to live this. This coming week, get into Revelation 21, 22. Start to pull it in to your present of what your future destiny is. Finish off then with this. We're going to be building culture. For some of us, the invitation is, come and get on the bus, you're really welcome. It may be that we've never ever centered our life on Jesus. We've never realized that's the destiny. We just thought it was like some sense of rules or like just a golden ticket to the afterlife. We didn't realize it was something that was going to transform everything about who we are now. 
And therefore the invitation to us is come and see this Jesus, explore this Jesus' life, death and resurrection and the destiny that you can have. For others of us, maybe it's that we've lost track. We say, oh yeah, I, I, I know I am centered on Jesus, but to be honest, I've kind of taken myself off the bus. I'm just seeking to live with something else at the center, something else that's my source. Maybe today we're going to have a moment in a couple of seconds that, or actually be more than a couple of seconds, that um, is going to be a moment where we say, Jesus, I want to put you back as the source and center of my life. Then for all of us, I'd say, who are followers of Jesus, who are on the bus, who are saying, that's my destiny, I want to ask us this, what one thing will you do to ensure this week God is the source and center of your all? I'm going to have a moment now for some of us to think, are we getting on the bus? Or what's the one thing that we want to do? And I'm going to pray for us. Okay, do you want to stand? And then once you've stood, if we close your eyes, I uh, find it's best to do it that way. If you close your eyes as you're standing, tend to kind of fall over. So stand up, close your eyes, just a way of not getting distracted. I'm not trying to be controlling. It's just a way of just not getting distracted by other people. It's not some spiritual thing. Um, with our eyes closed, I just want to give a moment. We don't often do this, but I felt like it was an appropriate moment, not for some sort of affirmation for me, but rather for us to indicate something to God. And if today you feel like, actually, maybe you want to say, Jesus, I want to walk towards you i want to explore what it is to have you as the one who's at the source and center of my life in the moment i'm going to count to three when i get to three i want you to put your hand up not worrying what other people are thinking because they've all got their eyes closed so they don't know i do and what i'd like you to i'm going to pray for you and then i'd like you at the end to just come and talk to me um the other side of people who would like to respond is where you know that you've kind of lost sight you know you are a follower of jesus but you know that actually isn't the source and center. And today is a significant moment of saying, Jesus, you know what? I'm making you source and center of my life again. Uh, and then after, we've, I'm going to pray and then uh, we'll kind of pray a bit more about some other things. Anyway, so if you'd like to respond to either of those things, one, two, three, put your hand up. Thank you. Thank you. Okay, I'm just going to pray. Jesus, I thank you so much for those that have responded. And I just ask, would you cause them to know that you welcome with open arms? I thank you, Father, that you don't ever turn anyone away. I thank you, you're one who just lovingly brings us back in. And I pray, God, would you cause us to live and cause them to live with that deep knowledge of you from this moment on being source and center of their life. And God, I want to pray for all of us here. I want to pray, God, that this wouldn't be something that we just think, oh, it's kind of fun, or maybe not fun. I pray, God, that it'd be rather something that delights our hearts. I pray for each and every one of us that we become those that are defined by our destiny. And I pray as a church that we'd give ourselves to building something that will last for eternity. I ask this for your glory, Jesus. Amen.